look at what Everytown is doing this year, and an interview with Matt Stoller from the Ammo Price League. That and more on this episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I made the devil run. I gave him poison just for fun. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Gutowski. I'm also the founder of TheReload.com, where you can head over and check out our membership options today. If you want to support our independent, reader-funded journalism here, we try to approach things from a sober, serious point of view and give you the best firearms reporting and analysis that's out there, stuff you can't get anywhere else. And so if you want exclusive access to dozens of stories and analysis pieces, you should head on over today and, and buy a membership. Uh, $10 a month, $100 a year, so there's a little bit of discount there. And if you do that, you'll also get early access to this podcast. You'll get it a day before everyone else, and you'll have the opportunity to appear on the show in a member segment, which actually, we're going to have one of those in this episode. So stay tuned, and you'll be able to hear from one of our great members. And uh, But before we get to that, we have a wonderful guest, Matt Stoller. He's the research director of the American Economic Liberty Project and an author as well. And he wrote an interesting piece on the great ammo shortage that we've got going on. Some potential explanations for it. Matt, thanks for coming on the show. Can you tell people a little bit more about yourself? Sure. Thanks for having me. So, yeah, so just to, I'm a, I focus on the problem of monopoly in America and uh, so I'm not a gun or, or ammunition expert. I look at markets across the board and the legal framework that we use to organize those markets, particularly what's called antitrust law, which is the specific body of law that's targeted at making sure that we don't have monopolization in markets, but also at other kind of regulatory pieces in bankruptcy and the financial system and across, across uh, you know, Medicare, all, all the sort of a lot of the pieces of law that structure and govern our markets. And I also wrote a book called Goliath, the hundred year war between monopoly power and democracy. Uh, and I write a, I write a newsletter on the problem of market power. So, that, right. yeah. and, and in that newsletter, uh, that's where you wrote a piece that's been circulating, uh, in the gun community recently that deals with, uh, the application of what you study to the ammunition market in particular. Can you give us a little bit uh, a background on that piece and what your what your thoughts were, what your arguments were. Yeah. So what we see across the economy is that in industries where you have a high uh, capital investment, in, you know, a lot of commodity industries, particularly in the processing area, but also just where you need to put a lot of money in to build factories or other processing units, you see uh, price spikes that are disproportionate to the increase in demand, and that's what you're seeing in the ammunition market. I, I think. When I when I looked into this market in particular, there it's always been very cyclical. There's always been uh, booms and busts and shortages in ways that you didn't typically see in the rest of the American economy. You do see them now in the American economy because of COVID. Um, but what you know, the somebody told me about the the great ammunition shortage of 2020, and um, and now there's also one in 2021. Um, and I got interested in it because you know the the. Whenever you see a shortage, usually there's a there's a monopoly lurking behind it, or there's there's some level of market concentration. And just to give you the framework for that, um, we we started looking at the problem of monopoly in America right after the financial crisis. It got kind of more political, and economists started studying it. And what they found is that because of the relaxation of antitrust laws, about 75% of industries in America have become more concentrated since 2000. And that is also true in the gun industry. You know, I, I don't have to tell you about it, but there has been kind of consolidation so that you effectively have two firms uh, that control ammunition or that control the domestic stock of ammunition, so excluding imports. And so what I wrote in the in my newsletter is, you know, I, I looked at the investor transcripts of, you know, Vista Outdoors just to see what they were saying, because there's this big debate over inflation and market power. And I was like, well, let's look at an individual market like the ammunition market. And what the uh, CEO and some of the other executives were saying was, 
you know, we're expanding capacity a little bit to meet demand, but really what we're trying to do is we're trying to keep prices high and um, what they, they call it a quote unquote disciplined industry. There's all these euphemisms for ways of saying we're restraining supply and not always for bad reasons. They don't want to see a, a crash in the market. Uh, but that that's what you see with when you have um, it, it can be airlines, it can be rental cars, lots of different industries. When they talk about a disciplined industry, what they mean is that there are so few competitors that nobody is trying to invest in capacity to take market share. So they're all kind of like either formally or informally colluding your strict output and keep prices high. And lo and behold, that's what the executives, or at least the Vista executives were saying. The Olin guys, you know, they're more of a chemical company, so they don't really care that much about their ammunition sector. But that... Um, that's, or at least their investors don't care that much. But that's what they were saying. So I wrote that up. And, um, you know, that, that's the gist of it. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you you quote uh, CEO of Vista. His name's uh, Christopher Metz. Uh, talking about specifically their acquisition, uh, acquisition of Remington right. recently and Remington's ammo business in, in particular. And, and the thing about Vista, a lot of people might not know this. A lot of the average you know gun owner might not realize that like if you walk into a gun store, there's a lot of brands on the on the shelf, right? There's Federal, Blazer, CCI, um, you know, American Eagle. There's all kinds of brands, but a lot of them are owned, in fact, by Vista in particular. And then Olin owns, you know, Winchester, which is another really big uh, ammo manufacturer. And and so I, you know, I guess the the bottom line, the argument here sounds like. Um, you know, and and it's reflected somewhat in these quotes that you've highlighted in your your newsletter, which is uh, by the way is big by Matt Stoller. If people want to read this piece for themselves, I think they they should. Um, but effectively, the argument is that there's two conglomerates that dominate the ammo manufacturing market, and they are acquiring uh, other companies in order to have better control over the output of the industry so that they can avoid the sort of uh, um, roller coaster effect of, of the surges in the market, surges and declines by, you know, moderating how much supply is actually out there at any given time. Uh, is that like a fair assessment of the sort of basic argument here as to why you know, as to what's going on and how it relates to price increases on ammunition? Absolutely. I mean, the the, the quote, and this wasn't from the CEO, but it was from a, the, the head of ammunition for Vista. They said that the most important reason for the Remington acquisition was, quote, added capacity to Vista without increasing the overall market capacity. That's a euphemism for saying we're not expanding the amount of capacity in the market, so we have more pricing power. And what you've talked about where... There are a lot of brands, and then, but there's just one, one or two companies behind the brands. It's actually something that you see in most markets at this point. When you go to the supermarket and you see a bunch of cereal, lots of different brands, or you see a bunch of different toothpaste brands, they're all really owned, you know, and beer, same thing. Like they're all really owned often by, uh, by one or two companies. And beer is a little bit different because you do actually still have some, you have craft brews for the interesting reasons. But even there, you're seeing a lot of, of acquisitions. And so what you what you have with the ammunition market, where most of the brands are owned by Vista, um, is you know that's 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 common, and that's it's for the same reason they, they want control of. Everybody wants to set prices, right? That's what you want. You want market power because it you know best business model in the world. What Warren Buffett called the toll booth, right? And that when you control, um, when you have market power, you have a toll booth. Mm. Right, uh, and obviously, I, th I think there's a number of critiques to this oh, uh, basic perfect. argument. I want to. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right. right, we're done. We're done, guys. Yes, uh, podcast done. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Uh, make sure you head over to the. Road. No, um, uh, yeah, no. I mean, obviously, and we'll get into some of those. I just wanted to to make clear, but but I do think that there is some uh, correlation here that you've identified that makes sense in the ammo market because. One of the things you talk about is uh, especially a barrier of entry into this kind of market, because obviously the traditional response to prices increasing in a particular market, in the ammo market in this case, and, and I think for one, it's undeniable that prices have increased. Prices are sky high right now for ammunition. I think anyone 
who buys ammunition realizes and there, and there this, are choices too. So as, even if you you sometimes you can't even find it, from what I understand. Right. Yeah. There's been there's been a two year long shortage at this point of ammunition, almost two years. I mean, you know, coming up in March here is when the the surge began, but. But or maybe some and some manufacturers have said that it actually went back further than that because of uh, some of the other uh, factors that that drive uh, sales had, had kicked in even before the pandemic began. But uh, regardless, you know, it's undeniable that that prices have gone up and, and in some cases, like, I mean, almost tripled. Right. Uh, for the, the cost of five, five, six or two, two, three ammunition has has moved from, you know, 20 cents around to 30 cents around. Uh, <clears throat> it's gotten ridiculous at points. I think most people would, would admit. Um, and, and so the big question everyone has is why, why has it gone up so much? And I think that your explanation, uh, that part of the reason is consolidation and that these larger companies have an incentive at the very least to not want to, um, uh, increase supply too much uh, in, in a market like that, it makes sense. And the traditional answer that higher prices will lead to more people entering the market and prices coming back down due to the competition, um, <clears throat> it, it doesn't work as well, perhaps, in this market, given a, a number of factors, including the high, bench, the high barrier of entry in, in terms of costs and you know construction of factories, and then uh, dealing with regulated uh, um, explosive material, essentially, in production of ammunition. So, uh, you know, I, th I think there's some fair points in here for sure. Can you just talk a little bit more about uh, about that aspect of it, how this high barrier of entry makes it makes this particular market less responsive to high pricing increases? Yeah, I mean, barriers to entry, it's a very, you know, we're we're in kind of the midst of a revolution in antitrust thinking because because of the consolidation that we've seen for 25 years uh, or 40 years actually there was this perception from economists just really starting in the early 80s that high prices will lead to entry which will compete down the prices and you don't want to intervene in markets because you know high prices can be or 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 just dominant firms are can are often a result of just firms being better than other firms, like the biggest firm is the biggest because it's the best, right? And you know, if they're if they have what are called supernatural profits, you know, uh, then the best way to to break the break their monopoly is to have somebody come into the market, take some of their margin, right? That's the traditional model for how to see the problem. And what we've uh, what economists have sort of figured out, uh, not economists, but economists and other scholars, is that markups in the economy, which is to say a kind of profit margins and uh, in particular have gone have gone up and they've stayed up, right? So you're not seeing this kind of entry. Um, and in this particular market, you know, every market is different, right? Every market is its own special snowflake. Um, uh, you know, in, in some markets like meat and cattle, right? You Cattle ranchers are all complaining about the problem because they have the, the meat packers that are dominant. There's not that many meat packers. You, you know, the, they're regional, so if there's one meat plant or meat packing plant near you, that's the only one you can go to. You're a price taker. If that one shuts down, like you're kind of screwed. Um, so the, the meat packers have a lot of power, and they also, if if a, someone tries to set up a competitive meat packing plant, then a grocery store like the meat the dominant meat packers will sell it. If you buy from the new guy, we won't sell to you, right? So they have they also have control over distribution, not just the physical production. And I don't know that that's happening in the in the gun and ammunition industry. I think it probably isn't because it seems like right. people will find this stuff. They'll buy it online. They'll you know th there's not that as much of a control of distribution. But still, you have to look at the whole kind of. Well, I, it looks like you wanted to to say something. Yeah, no, I mean uh, that that is one of that was one of my critiques of yes. this uh, general theory here. It, not not to say that there's no effect from the consolidation or that's like like I was just saying that I think there it, the you made a good case that the fact that two companies dominate this the market is uh, probably helping them to modulate supply in order to keep prices higher. To, I, I think, and not necessarily just because they want to make more. I mean, obviously, every business wants to make more money, but but it's also I think there's a as you identify in your your piece itself, there's a very real fear in the ammo industry uh, of 
the crash, right? right of, of overproducing and then demand drying up and then them having to shut down factories and lay people off. This was something that uh, Hornady, which is a, this is another point too that I would bring up is, well, there are a number of significant manufacturers beyond Vista and Owen, of course, there's Hornady, there's SIG, there's Ammo, Inc. There, there's, there are other producers that they're not the size and scope of Vista or Owen, but but there are other players in the market and they have all increased their own production uh, as well. But uh, but anyway, you know, when I spoke to them last year for a piece that I wrote on on the shortage and why it's happened and what what how long it's going to last, which is still it's still ongoing and, and is likely to last even further. But the one of the things that came across is the fear of overproduction and then right. having to constrict your business on the other end of that. And you see this in the firearms industry all the time because of the cyclical nature of it, because of the you get these big surges in demand that come all at once and then cool off fairly quickly. Uh, and it's hard to predict. I mean, this is this is kind of obviously this go be, goes beyond ammo and, and gun industry and yeah, all you, kinds you, of. This is true for for all for most commodity industries uh, in general. Yeah. Like the, after World War One, you know, the aluminum basically after a war, everybody has way too much capacity, at least. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, dealing with overcapacity, dealing with these cyclical swings is is always tricky. Then I think the other the other weakness of my argument is that, you know, there's just been a massive increase in demand. There's just a lot more gun owners. And so right. you could definitely and I, I don't think that the shortage and the high prices are just purely a result of consolidation. They're clearly a result of, of you know, really high demand. But the question is why yeah. things haven't normalized and why there isn't uh, a lot more investment. It, that I think is yeah, like, I think that's the, the kind of core of it. I think that's much more interesting, which is why I wanted to have you on, because because obviously you hear a lot of there, people notice the the lack of supply and the increased prices. And you get a lot of questioning, you get a lot of theories, and a lot of them are just kind of like there isn't much to it. You know, there might be some tiny grain of truth here or there, but it's kind of, they exaggerate it to say like you hear a lot about, oh, this is because the government's buying up ammunition uh, and, and they're doing it on purpose so that we can't buy it. And it's like the. Yes, the government government agencies buy a lot of ammunition, even ones you wouldn't expect, because a lot of government agencies right. have police forces that you wouldn't realize that they do, but like the post office or something, right? But, but like police, they do that all the time. The housing, yeah. there's like yeah, it's it's kind of weird. They all have police departments. Everybody's got a police department. Uh, it's like if you're a government agency and you don't have a police department, you're not cool. <laughs> right, and they all buy you know millions right. of rounds of ammunition because right. they have to train their officers yeah. and and you. You know, so so the, it's true that government agencies buy up a lot of ammunition. What's not true is that it's likely driving much of any of right. the, you know, surge in in prices or lack of supply. That you know, because they do this, they're buying ammunition all the time. It's well, the other thing is that the government anyway. actually owns plant. They own ammunition plants that are operated by the like Olin. One of their biggest right. production facilities is actually government owned plant. Um, and one mm -hmm. of the reasons we had a consolidation is because when, after the Cold War, the military just shut down a bunch of its ammunition plants, right? So, like, there's right. a that's another um, part of the, the dynamic. Yeah, and you've seen that with uh, gun makers too. I mean, there's uh, what Rock Island Armory is was an old army yeah. armory, but now is a private company operating out of the Philippines yeah. to make firearms. But uh, and Springfield and, and so forth. By the but, way, that's that's but, an uh, easy way to take capacity off the market and. Like, is if, if the government, like one of the ways that we managed like swings in aluminum prices after World War II is the government just bought big stocks of aluminum when the prices were low and sold them back into the market. We have strategic petroleum reserves. Like there's no reason why you mm -hmm. couldn't do this with, you know, like since government's buying a ton of ammo anyway, right? I mean, or mm -hmm. there's no reason you couldn't have the government manage the swing. Strategic these. ammo reserve. Yeah. I mean, right. like you're going to. You need it, <laughs> right? I mean, um, not a bad idea. Um, um, but but my point with that is just that uh, you know I wanted to have you on because I thought reading through your piece that you you weren't trying to push this to be the only explanation for what's going on. It's just a part of what's happening, yeah. and I think that's reasonable to to say. You know, like how big of a part can I is, just, can is I a more interesting question. One possibility here that I think ex so this is this is really about like. The industry is cyclical. We all know that what's happening here is the demand is driving it. But the question is kind of like how much, uh, how pro-cyclical, 
how much of the procyclicality is being driven by demand and uh, mm-hmm. and how much is being driven by the kind of ossified industry structure, which is a function of consolidation. And I don't have an answer to that. I think a significant amount of the, of the like lack of investment is coming from that. And I'll just give you a, a Supreme Court case that that caused this problem. Um, so a couple of years ago, there was a, a warehouser, which is a, a, a lumber, uh, they uh, they process logs into lumber, right? And one of the things that they uh, what they were doing is they were um, they were pricing their product when they had a competitor that was smaller that was trying to come to the market. They would price their products lower than that competitor, or they would they would bid up the raw materials, like overpay for the raw materials, particularly the the logs, so that their competitor couldn't couldn't get access to those logs. And the idea was to destroy the ability of new firms to have capacity in the market. That's called predatory pricing or predatory bidding, depending on what side of the market you're doing it on. If you're overpaying, it's predatory bidding. If you're underpricing, it's predatory pricing. But it's the same dynamic. So Warehouser was doing this, and they caused um, their competitors to go out of business. And it went to the courts. And their competitor said, this is an antitrust violation. You're trying to monopolize the market because after we go out of business, you're going to raise prices or you're going to lower the amount that you're paying for logs. And so it went all the way up to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court said, well, no, since you're uh, reducing prices on the consumer side or you're raising prices to pay to suppliers, even though you're doing it to monopolize the market, uh, it's legal because you know, all we care about is price. We don't care about whether you're acquiring market power. That's not really a thing. And um, and so that effectively legalized a form of predatory pricing, and particularly predatory bidding, right, which has really significant impacts in high capital cost industries, because I'm not going to build a, a factory to like if I want to if I'm saying, OK, I'm going to I want to compete with Vista. I'm going to build a big factory. Um, Vista, like, let's say there is a, a crash, right? We know this is a cyclical industry. Um, then how do we know that Vista isn't going to intentionally underprice to try to drive like the, the firm out of the market? I mean, it's legal for them to do it, right? Because the Supreme Court legalized it versus not being able to do that. Like if the incentive model for investing in more capacity across the economy changed once that Weyerhaeuser decision came, came out. And so you, why wouldn't, you know, like the same thing is true with um, merger law, right? The, the purchase acquisition of Remington you know, it, they bought it out of bankruptcy, but like Remington got ruined by a private equity firm. Like it was operationally, it was sort of destroyed there. And so that, that's another like that. That's another trend across the economy where you have the acquisition of firms by private equity who don't really care about the operational details. They will often ruin the firm. And then that firm will kind of be a, an empty husk, which will, will be put, you know, acquired by a, a conglomerate in the industry. And that's a problem of enabling uh, kind of these financiers to, 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 to engage in that kind of predatory behavior and then not enforcing merger laws. So then that allows industries to get consolidated. So there's plus this predatory pricing, predatory bidding, the legalization of that. So you, you have kind of like a whole series of factors and what you're dealing with. And this I'm actually curious because you know a lot more about this than I do. But, you know, what I was told is that it's particularly the primers are the problem. Like they're the kind of the key bottleneck. You have like issues with staff and brass and other other you know, raw materials. But it's really the primers that are the bottleneck in terms of build, you know, getting more ammo. And um, anyway, I just I think like what's likely happening is that that you see brittleness. You know, we, we've never had a problem like this in America where we just didn't have supply for this long in the ammunition market at a period of peacetime. And so I think we have to like recognize that there is granted the like COVID the situation is is also we've never never had a situation like this but um, but I think we 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 shouldn't be in this uh, situation we know how to make ammo we've known how to make ammo for hundreds of years so something is different um, but I, yeah. right yeah well here's a, and and I think that all those are legitimate points uh, and here are, here are the reasons that I think the impact of what you just talked about might be more limited uh, in terms of at least some of the, some of the factors that might limit this particular effect that you're, you're describing, even though I do, I do find your argument pretty persuasive that there is some effect from all of this, but you know, there are a couple things that make me skeptical about how much this is impacting the market because one, you know, you do, there just is so much more demand now yeah. 
than there was in 2019. I mean, the you know when I when I spoke with Hornady about this, you know, uh, he compared it to what would happen if the NFL suddenly had you know eight million more people who wanted to go to football games every Sunday, uh, and how would that industry be able to deal with that in terms of building stadium capacity to house all those people. That's that. And, and, and again, this is Hornady. So this is a smaller manufacturer that's not Vista or Olin, uh, but is a well-known company and does make a lot of ammunition. They've, they've expanded their operations. But his, his comparison was making the point that a mature manufacturing industry like the, the ammo industry, which has been around for hundreds of years now, and takes a lot of physical infrastructure to uh, build out capacity for more ammunition to be made, it's difficult to do that quickly. Like a lot, you know, you can spin up uh, lines that weren't at 100% capacity, but if you get an influx of demand that's, uh, you know, an incredible increase. Here's a quote that he gave me as, as far as, demand goes. He said, he told me this in uh, 2021, so this was last year, but uh, in 2020, we were up 30%-ish. Our whole industry was up 30%-ish. In, in the short term, you do what you can to maximize hours and maximize what you can. We got that 30%. And now the market is asking me for no, another, not just another 30%. It's asking for 80%. So he, he really put a lot of the uh, supply issues on just pure demand. That And, and I heard this from from dealers, from distributors, from retailers, in addition to the uh, manufacturers themselves. I mean, uh, Winchester uh, told me, no, as Vista told me that sales were up 37% uh, in 2020 alone, and, and that they've only increased since then. So one, I do think that demand is probably the biggest driver of the price increases and the supply constraints that exist right now. Um, and then two, like, as you alluded to here, like I know you, uh, in your piece, you made a persuasive argument about uh, your analogy to the poultry industry, right? The poultry to producers and how they, with with the way that that market's been consolidated, the the producers could go and put pressure on distributors or or retailers to uh, not buy from other producers that are trying to come into the market. I think that's harder to do in the ammo industry, just because there. If you look at how ammunition is sold in the United States, it's it's generally mostly sold through smaller uh, gun stores, not through chains. Obviously, there are chains like Academy or uh, Bass Pro uh, or uh, Cabela's, but one, they tend to be regional, and um, I think the market has actually moved I, I believe Bass further away from that. I think they did. Right, yeah, Bass Pro bought yeah. Cabela's. So there's, there's, you know, there, obviously there's some consolidation there, but but I, Sorry, I'm just nipping. I think most people, no, 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 no. I mean that's true, but my point, my point is just that uh, most people buy their ammunition from local stores if they're buying it in person from from your local gun store. That's how I buy my ammunition. There isn't really a Cabela's or Bass Pro or Gander Mountain. Do you know? Are, there, like are there ammo distributors, or do, do, the, there, do the stores get it from? Uh... There are, but you can buy it both ways in the ammo, ammo industry. And a lot of people will also, if they're buying in bulk, will buy directly from uh, an online retailer that sells in right. bulk. Um, and, and you can also buy directly from uh, the manufacturers themselves too. Vista even has now a subscription yeah, no, but product. It's kind of an interesting question. Why aren't there uh, stronger chains in this industry? There are chains it, in everything else. It is an interesting question. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's interesting because the markets actually move further away from yeah. chains. Like, it seems like mainly a political thing, honestly, because Walmart used to be the biggest retailer of ammunition in the country, right? But they got out of the business almost entirely because of the El Paso mm -hmm. shooting. Um, that which happened inside of Walmart, obviously, even though that wasn't, you know, obviously you can make an argument about whether that's connected, them selling ammunition is connected to the shooting, but, but, uh, you know, the same thing happened with Dick's, mm -hmm. Dick's Sporting Goods 
is almost entirely out of the ammunition and gun industry at this point, uh, mainly because of politics. Uh, and so you haven't really seen, it has been interesting to watch and, and notice that they haven't really so, so we have a kind of like perfect experiment in an economy where there's like most things are dominated by chains. Ammunition and guns might actually be this area where that's like the opposite, right? Where you can study that yeah. and see dynamics, the competitive dynamics. And, and I think that's the one of the big critiques of the Bass Pro Cabela's merger is that they were actually shrinking the size of that chain, mm -hmm. uh, of those two chains by merging them together. Um, and so they're less dominant than, than they were beforehand. And so, yeah, I mean, and Gander went bankrupt for most of those stores went out of business. So they got bought up by, uh, the, the guy with the TV show, right. Uh, Lemenis or whatever the guy on CNBC, um, who owns RV world, but, uh, yes. And the, so the one by me closed the dicks by me doesn't sell the stuff anymore. Um, so yeah, you've seen sort of the reverse in the retail side of, of guns uh, over the last 10 years or so, it's gotten less. Have you seen an increase in the focused. number of uh, independent owned gun stores or has it stayed the same and more of it's being sold online? That's a good question. I mean, I, I don't know that I've seen, uh, you know, obviously I don't, I, uh, I'm just talking about my personal experience right. here in Northern Virginia, which has quite a lot of gun right. stores, I think, comparatively to most places um, and Rangers probably because of the military presence here. But uh, yeah, no, I don't know that I've seen a huge increase in the number of gun stores that have opened up independently well, like either. They, I have to look at the National Shooting Sports Foundation's uh, data. Dicks and Walmart that. stopped selling. Did it, you know, that probably helped existing gun stores. I'm not sure spur yeah. the opening of new ones. Um, right. That's what I would imagine. Uh, it's uh, The other thing that you, you know, this latest surge has affected supply so much that it you know, how much that's helped the retail. I mean, obviously pro they're probably benefiting from the fact that they've sold out a lot of their stock, but if you can't get your right. stock you in, this is another, right. this is another problem with my, the general critique, like you see uh, Elizabeth Warren or the administration make uh, towards the meat packing industry, where the argument is that prices are going up because uh, it's similar argument of uh, consolidation. And there's, there, these companies are bringing in massive profits, but the prices are still going up. But when you look at, like, if you go to the grocery store and there's no meat to sell, I don't think that that is because the meat producers want things to be that way. You know what I mean? And it's the same thing in the ammo market. Like, I, I under, like this, I, 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 I can buy the idea that there's this effect exists and is having an impact on the pricing and the supply uh, isn't increasing as fast because of these factors. But I, I don't know that the... They're the main factor let me, let me, or what's um, driving it. Let me, uh, so, so the cattle, so the, the administration and Elizabeth Warren are not like they, they're getting, um, so I wrote a piece about the cattle industry. Uh, what we're talking about is the spread in the meatpacking industry between what the cattle ranchers are getting and what consumers are getting. And there's been an antitrust price fixing lawsuit since that's alleges, I think pretty credibly that since 2015, the packers have been uh, increasing the spread. Uh, so, so that sometimes the consumer price of beef goes up or sometimes it goes down, but the price, it's the difference between the price of what the consumer is paying and the cattle producer is, uh, is getting. And I, so I think like Elizabeth Warren and the administration are saying this, but what, you know, they're getting it from the cattle ranchers who are, you know, going out of business, even as meat is at record uh, prices. So right. I think there it's like a pretty, you, you're, you're hundred percent right. That price demand is, is a factor and prices are up because of COVID, but, um, uh, but they, they are, they, the problem predates COVID and you wouldn't see prices up as much if you didn't see this consolidation um, and you had more kind of regional slaughterhouses and things like that. Like I'm pretty confident. I think about that's, that. yeah, I think that that argument is credible and makes sense just like in the ammo industry. Uh, I think what the administration and Elizabeth Warren are doing takes it much further than that particular argument uh, because I, I don't think that it explains why we have continuing shortages uh, because I would imagine that both the meat packing industry and the ammo industry 
would like to sell us their products. Like, yes, they'd like to right. have it be at a higher price and with less competition so they can sustain that price and don't have to worry about overproducing as much and, and, and these various things we've talked about. But they certainly want to sell you their products and having nothing on the shelf is not. I helping. wrote a piece about um, about shortages in February of 2020. So like right before the pandemic kind of hit in force. And one of the one of the sort of the philosophy of modern antitrust, but also it's kind of a broader uh, philosophical orientation is that efficiency should be the lodestar of our economic policy. So big is good, right? Because big hmm. means they're better at things. And one of the one of the things that that meant, and this is not just for antitrust, but for trade policy, has been get rid of extra capacity because that's inefficient. Offshore things, offshore production, make everything hyper efficient, which is to say you thin out your supply chains and you know that way there are very there are very few costs. You don't carry a lot of inventory. Now, of course, when you do that, you don't just reduce, you know, and you you outsource as much as you can, not just to foreign countries, but like a lot of our auto firms are now basically original. They're they're just assembly makers. They have offshore. They've outsourced a lot of the production of the vehicles themselves to contractors, and then they, you know, that's true kind of across the board. When you do that, you thin out like you. you there's a trade off efficiency for resilience, and so we're much less resilient. There's just a lot less capacity. Mm. And we don't make as much stuff here. And so when you have a shock, your supply chains might be more efficient, but they are way more brittle, right? And then yeah. so you don't just don't have the the ability to adjust. And then I think like in February 2020, I was like, we're going to have a lot of shortages when no one else was saying this is a problem. And it's because I talked to supply chain people who were like, oh, this is a really serious problem. And so the the, yeah. the economic strategy here. And the philosophy, it like isn't. It's not. I'm not saying that this is just like corporate greed or whatever. What I'm saying is that the philosophy right. of trading off efficiency for resilience right. is really dangerous and leads to this kind of of, of problem. And I think that yeah. So I, I agree with that too, uh, and and I think you can see that effect in the ammo industry as well because because and it affects it in in weird ways you might not even expect. Uh, and I remember Hornady was telling me like. The cardboard that they used right. to make the boxes for the ammunition uh, to go into was hard to find and becoming really expensive and shipping it became extremely hard to do. And all of these things relate to exactly well, that the, phenomenon you're talking there about. There was a price fixing case against container board and the, the you know, the, the cardboard makers. And because we've relaxed price fixing law, you know, they were clearly colluding either formally or informally. But, you know, the court dismissed it and container board and cardboard are way more expensive in the U.S. than they are in Europe. And it's just mm. because they don't allow as collusion as easily in Europe um, as they do, you know, as they do uh, here. So it's like you've seen. Yeah. And it's weird. Like you see this in all of these markets and then they, they kind of like semiconductors. You know, it, it's it's another one. There's been massive consolidation in that industry and semiconductors are now going into everything. And are probably like the shortage of semiconductors is probably a response to uh, is probably resulting in in significant price hikes and in adding to inflation. Although we just we don't know how much. Um, yeah. So yeah, I mean it's it, it it's kind of like across the board. And and I think there's one other thing that that you know when you do when you don't have resilience in your systems, like if we if if the government, for example, if we go went back to a situation where the government had say a strategic ammunition reserve, which makes a lot of sense, and I, the military ha obviously has stockpiles of ammunition, right? Right. Um, one of the things that that these that that you see when you don't have any resilience is you see hoarding, right? And and so people go and they try to buy, you know, they can't get any ammunition, so they try to buy, uh, they order boxes of ammunition from a lot of different places, knowing that most of them won't come through. And then those distributors or those producers, they are saying, oh, wow, we have so many more orders. And then they go and they try to order a lot more because they know that only some of that will come through. And so what you're seeing is there's a lot of phantom mm -hmm. demand, which is bad because it both puts a lot of pressure on the suppliers to provide a lot more than the market actually demands. But then it, and it also like leads to a kind of deflationary crash because once all that stuff starts coming through and people finally start ramping up production there's a lot of phantom demand that's not real and so that like leads to a very kind of pro cyclical what they call the bullwhip effect you know you know like when you 
or when you get in the shower and you turn it and it's like you turn it too hot and then you turn it too cold. And, you know, that that's so when you the trade off of resilience and efficiency has all sorts of like of negative uh, consequences. And I think that's kind of why we're rethinking our, um, you know, antitrust, but it's like but kind of more broadly how how we organize our our political economy, how we structure our markets. And so, I mean, I, I think one of the things that, I, that turns people off about the arguments here is that is this idea that it's that it's kind of like corporate greed, right? This, this sort of lefty mm-hmm. posture where you're where you're like, oh, it's just a bunch of bad people doing bad things to make money, and, and it's right. like, no, I mean, profit is is a good thing. Like, profit indicates that you're taking a bunch of inputs and you're creating something that's more valuable than those inputs, right? Like, that's the the basic. You're, that is a good thing to do because it means that that brass and and various other inputs are turned into ammunition, which is something people want to use. Um, so that's a good thing. And it, but I um, but I think like the the it's gone too far in saying that you know cheating to get or monopolizing or restraining um, restraining trade and generating those profits is the same thing as actually producing things that people want and need. So just to get back to cattle for a second, you know, you, you say, well, I don't think that they would, it would be a good idea for them to not have anything on the shelf. That's bad for these firms. But in fact, a cyber attack shut down one of JBS's main meatpacking plants and took off a significant amount of, of meatpacking supply, actually caused shortages. And what happened? The meatpackers did incredibly well because prices just skyrocketed. So their profits actually went up when there was nothing on the shelves. Now the cattle ranchers, they didn't do well because there was nowhere to sell their cattle and consumers couldn't get meat and then they could get it. It was a, at a really high price. So what you want is you want a situation where people make money by making sure there's stuff on shelves that people want. What you really don't want is a situation where, where people make money by making sure there's not stuff on shelves and even accidentally. And that's like kind of where we're getting right. to with so much consolidation. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I can understand how that could happen in the short term. I just I would imagine that it's not sustainable for the long term, but for years and years, uh, which is why I don't. I, like, I, yeah, I, I can understand how tomorrow. that could create. A, <laughs> right, right. I, I, mean, I can understand how. <laughs> right, I, I can understand how there'd be a perverse incentive of like, oh, it's because the meat's scarce or the ammo's scarce that it's much more expensive, and so you make a lot of money on the couple. Uh, um, whatever you have currently in stock, but then if you if you're relying on complete lack of supply as to drive up prices, it's not going to work. Well, you know, because then your industry. I'll say this: things. there have been, uh, and th- I mean, this is just to this is a different regulatory schema, but somewhat similar. I mean, there have been drug shortages now for twenty twenty five years. So you talk to people who are in the medical industry. We didn't used to have shortages in pharmaceuticals and we, we do now, and they've been persistent and it's not. And so the, there is no more supply coming on the market. And that is because it's a very complicated, weird monopoly problem, but you basically have firms in the market that control purchasing of pharmaceuticals and they just, they make money by keeping prices so low that you actually can't even get anyone to produce it. And that became mm. ex- exceptionally dangerous during COVID, but, um, but like, regardless, in terms of medical supplies and pharmaceuticals, you have an example where shortages are not short term. They are long term and they are pervasive because the market doesn't function. The price signals. The whole point here is that, you know, I agree with you. I think that price signals convey important information. If prices are really high, that means people should enter the market. And the point of of the way that we've structured our legal framework is that those price signals don't work anymore or they're really slow. Um, sometimes they don't work at all. And that, so I think like that's in the ammo market. I mean, I don't, I I just don't, I'm not, I don't know it that well. And it seems like it's a relatively functional market. Um, and so it's all of these other things that are happening, you know, the mergers and the, and the, you know, the warehouse decision. And, you know, I'm sure there are, there are some things that are going on that are slowing adjustment there. Um, but like we, we are seeing the kind of the nightmare scenario in a lot of other markets that are, that are much worse than the ammo market. Yeah, that is interesting. I do think that the ammo market, because you, you don't see necessarily this kind of extreme price hiking very often in the in the ammo market. It's usually relatively stable, uh, and there are like you know there there is there are the two major players, but there are a number of smaller producers that still have nationwide reach. I mean, you can get Hornady 
ammunition or SIG ammunition across the country. So it's not, you know, so there, there's, there's, I definitely think the effect that we're talking about here is more limited on this market, but it, but it does sound like it's reasonable to think it exists and it's causing part of what's going on. Uh, I just think that the overwhelming demand and the increase in raw costs for the materials to make ammunition is probably the biggest driver of, of what's what we're seeing. But, but, you know, I think this has been really interesting and, and I, I think a lot of people are going to uh, enjoy listening to this and, and learning about uh, these concepts, uh, modern antitrust law and, and some of the issues that we have in our current markets. They're not perhaps the, uh, the, the ideal that we all would love them to be from like an econ class, but, but uh, you know, the real world is more complicated than that. And uh, so I appreciate you coming on. It's, can you tell people a little bit more uh, about where they can find your writing uh, maybe your book, uh, you know, if they want to read more from you. Sure. So uh, I, my Substack newsletter is called Big. And uh, so the title of this, my name is Matt Stoller, uh, S-T-O-L-L-E-R. So you can you can go to mattstoller.com and find information about me. The title of the piece is called What the Great Ammunition Shortage Says About Inflation. So you can you can Google that. And then my book uh, is called Goliath, The Hundred Year War Between Monopoly Power and Democracy. And in that in the book, which you know took me uh, four or five years to write, uh, and I was trying to explain why uh, our, our politicians, as a response to the financial crisis, which was caused by a consolidation of banking power, why what they chose to do was to further consolidate power. And I worked in Congress at the time and I was like, this seems like a bad idea. And they were like, no, 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 no. It's a, it's a good idea. We have to do this. These are the experts. And they weren't corrupt. Like I know them. They weren't. Some of them were. I mean, obviously, oh, there's always a bunch of people in politics that are corrupt, but not all of them were. A lot of them thought these were good ideas. And so what I was trying to say is it's much scarier if if people are bribed, it's, it's an easy problem to solve. If, if people actually think this stuff is a good idea, it's like, that's much harder. So what I wanted to do is explain the intellectual tradition and the history about why Americans used to fight monopolies and concentrations of financial power on all sides of the aisle. Like nobody liked it, right, left, center, whatever. Um, and then why that changed in the 70s and why you're seeing a kind of reaction to that. Um, and it's kind of like an explanation of, of why big tech exists which are because these are these are creatures okay. of of law. So it's it's a that's the that's the story. And, um, you know, it's like been really, you know, I come out of the left, but there's a lot of people on the conservative side. There's a lot of people in the business community that, you know, have have said, oh, this this stuff actually makes a lot of sense. Um, and uh, this tradition it doesn't belong to anybody, to any particular faction in our politics. But it's this kind of like hidden, hidden tradition in America. Um, so yeah, and people can pick that up uh, on Amazon and and other book dealers. I yeah, imagine. just uh, Amazon or uh, or Amazon, or uh, you can also get it at Amazon. Um, you know, yeah, um, <laughs> Wonderful. You, know, you can get it and, at, at, at you know. There's lots of, of bookstores and stuff. But my um, also my newsletter, I write about um, uh, I write about like monopolies and the, the politics of monopolies, so the different mm -hmm. antitrust enforcers and all the things they're doing. So great, and uh, of course I reached out to. Um, Vista and Owen, and they're welcome to come on the show as well. Anytime they would like uh, to talk more about the situation and, and uh, you know, perhaps respond to some of what you've written as yeah. well. Uh, but that's all we've got for, for this interview. We're going to move on now to uh, our news update. So we will see you on the other side. Thanks for having me. I'm here with contributing writer Jake Fogelman. It is the next day. They haven't done a wardrobe change between segments, just to be clear on that. Um, but Jake, we've got some interesting news this week about Everytown, the country's largest gun control group. Uh, they've started, you know, they've started putting out their agenda for, for each state for this upcoming legislative session, right? Uh, you wrote up a story on this. Can you give us a little bit of background on it? Yeah, that's right. Uh, so as you said, Everytown, uh, the country's most, probably most prominent gun control organization, um, as states' legislative sessions begin for the 2022 session, um, they've been releasing agendas, basically what they'd like to see get passed in each state. Um, there are some interesting ones, some that we would expect. They, in five of their releases that they've had as of recording this, um, they've focused on opposition to permitless carry, which we've covered the fact that permitless carry is making another push 
So Indiana, Nebraska, South Carolina, Florida, yeah, Alabama, <clears throat> Georgia, basically things that we've <laughs> Ohio, yeah, that we've covered thus far. Um, but there were some key omissions um, in some unlikely states, uh, Washington and California in particular, when they kicked off their legislative sessions. Uh, There's pretty modest proposals that every town was speaking out for. Uh, it was like safe storage, um, like a bill that would mandate schools send safe storage home with students. Um, and they didn't cover some pretty hot button issues like Washington, for example. There's talk of reintroducing an assault weapons ban and a, a magazine capacity ban and wasn't featured anywhere on the, on the agenda. Uh, likewise, in California, they didn't say anything about Governor Gavin Newsom's uh, call for the Texas abortion law model to be applied to guns. Um, so it's just interesting what they chose to support. Yeah, I think that is really interesting. It gives you some insight into perhaps differences of opinion or differences in priorities among uh, the gun control advocates uh, in state houses versus every town, which is really is the, the biggest player as far as uh, gun control advocacy goes. Uh, they're, they're obviously they're funded by Michael Bloomberg. Uh, in large part, but but they are the biggest group. They and even at points have outspent the NRA uh, in elections. I believe in 2018 they outspent the NRA right. uh, in in that election. So they're very prominent. They're very important part of this conversation. Um, and it's how they go may mean how the legislation goes. Yeah, so if they're not pushing these bills, then they're probably not going to get passed in places like California and Washington. I mean, maybe, maybe they will anyway, but uh, it's interesting. It's almost like right. when the NRA doesn't support a gun, a pro gun bill, you know, how, how much push is that going to end up with? It could still pass, but uh, depending on the dynamics in the state and a place sure. like California, especially uh, it might not matter as much whether or not every town is strongly right. backing a particular gun proposal because they seem to, kind of pass everything that comes up out there. Uh, not everything, but uh, right. a lot of the stuff. And so, but it, it does give you some, I think some insight into what every town thinks of, like specifically the abortion uh, strategy from Texas. Uh, certainly there's a lot of people on the left who argue that they might not like the tactic, but that they ought to do it anyway because people on the right are doing it. And uh, it's interesting to see every town not immediately jumping on board with that proposal, or at least not in the practical sense of going out and actually pushing for a bill in, in that vein. Sure. So, you know, I don't know. It probably it gives you some insight into strategy here down the line into what every town's thinking. You know, you look at these agendas and you can see their priorities are blocking permitless carry they're, they're almost uh, more on the defensive and they're they're pushing more uh moderate positions to some degree they're not pushing the most aggressive policies in, in some of these proposals so i think it's interesting i think it, it gives you some certainly some feel of what the atmosphere is out there right now even in these blue states Right. Uh, and I think even more telling in the California case, yeah, the, the Gavin Newsom proposal to copy Texas is a little bit out there as far as laws go. Um, I know a lot of the gun groups when he first announced that said, well, we're reviewing it. We, we're not going to take a position on it just yet. But there's another bill in California, uh, a San Francisco state legislator, uh, Phil Ting, uh, introduced uh, basically a copycat bill of New York's public mm. nuisance liability law. Um, which differs in, in key ways from the abortion proposal, where it would let governments sue uh, manufacturers and dealers for what they consider firearm violence to be a public nuisance in order to try to get around the liability protection. And they were silent on that proposal as well. That's, I mean, obviously that's still controversial and for, for pro-gun people, obviously, but it's at least been done before. And to see them Stay silent on that one. Is yeah, also telling you know, what their it's strategy fascinating because be. every town is not generally, uh, you know, afraid to push these sorts of proposals. Uh, in the past, they're obviously have supported right. assault weapons bans. They supported trying to repeal the federal liability protections for uh, gun manufacturers and dealers. So they're certainly not shy about 
these sorts of policies generally. And the fact that they're not at the top of their priority lists, I think does give you some insight into the atmosphere right now. Um, or maybe they're maybe even just every town's particular strategy this cycle will be uh, to move in a more moderate direction for the policies that they want to pursue that they think are realistic to get through uh, these various legislatures instead of focusing on policies that are more eye-catching perhaps uh, or more controversial right Uh, so it'll be interesting to see if that keeps up and how the gun rights groups respond and how other gun control groups go about their approach because you there haven't really there hasn't been a lot of uh these agendas released yet from the other groups right not at the national level at least some state groups have been putting out agendas for the specific states but you know the national groups have largely not done uh, anything yeah. along the lines so of what we kind of right done. now only have every town's particular uh, strategy to go off of in terms of looking forward at how advocacy might go in these these different state houses so uh, but I think it's I think that's what makes it particularly worthwhile to look at what they're advancing or what they're prioritizing, and I think uh, he's a good piece uh, there, Jake. So uh, I don't think anyone else has, has done that to this point. So uh, good job. I think we got some interesting insight. Um, but we're gonna head over. We actually have a members uh, segment this week. We're gonna do an interview with the members. So we're we're gonna head over that right now. All right. I'm excited to do another one of these members segments. We haven't done one in a little while, so I'm always intrigued and interested by some of the people who decided to join up at the reload and uh, like to meet them and introduce them to the rest of you guys. So today we have Dr. Jackson Crawford. He's a resident scholar at the University of Colorado. And I just wanted to welcome you to the show and give you a chance to just tell people a little bit about your background. Well, thanks. It's a privilege to be here. So um, I am an academic specialist in uh, the Old Norse language, Norse mythology. I taught at the University of California, Los Angeles for three years, University of California, Berkeley for two, and the University of Colorado for three. Um, During that time, it became clear to me just how popular the subjects I teach are. You know, people who aren't into Norse myth don't realize what a huge following there is for this stuff. Um, But I was pretty dismayed because it seemed like all the information that was out there was pushed by someone with some kind of agenda one way or the Mm -hmm. other. Uh, Often, you know, weird mysticist stuff or weird political stuff. And I thought, you know, why can't I make a living off of trying to present good information about a popular subject to people where they're looking for it, which was online. And uh, I hey, started that, a YouTube channel. That sounds familiar. <laughs> yeah, actually, I think we have really similar projects, uh, especially yeah. on a meta level. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I started a YouTube channel uh, in late 2016, supported by Patreon. Uh, I think this is before Substack and such were things. Um, Patreon, anyway, was what I found. And uh, by the end of the 2019-20 school year, pretty faithful time for other reasons, uh, I was able to actually quit my day job teaching the stuff in classrooms and actually move to full-time teaching online through YouTube. I have about, uh, I think today I have 201,000 subscribers on YouTube. And then, wow. Um, you know, my- that also actually, your story reminds me not just of my own, but also of uh, the podcast ju- guest we just had on, uh, Ian McCollum from Forgotten yeah, Weapons. Absolutely. Similar story there as well. Absolutely. Yeah. He, he and I are a little bit acquainted actually. Um, it was funny because a few weeks ago he posted a picture from one of my books on his Instagram and, and didn't know that I followed him. (laughs) So (laughs) we got in touch from there. It was, it was, uh, was pretty cool. He's a cool guy and I I really enjoy forgotten weapons. Yeah. He's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, That's our most popular interview so far. Um, probably, in large part due to Ian's popularity on YouTube, uh, but we've, we've had, uh, I think one of our clips from that got over 60,000 views, which is really good for us. We don't, right. we don't quite have uh, 200,000 subscribers yet. We're at like 1300, but Hey, 
I, I'm very happy with that progress. And Ian, Ian was very grace, gracious to come on the show, as are you. And uh, yeah, well, so it's good to, to get an understanding of your background. I'm interested, too, in uh, you know how you got interested in, in firearms. Uh, did you grow up with firearms? Do you own? I mean, you know, you don't necessarily have to own any guns to be interested in sort of the news about them. Uh, what, what's your background in that area? Uh, I come from a family with a lot of like Western cowboy type heritage. Uh, guns were never really in the foreground of my immediate family, but they were definitely in the background. You know, everyone had something. And, and then, you know, I had more extended family members who were more like real gun people. Um, uncle, aunt, that kind of thing. Um, in adulthood, I got real interested at first in like cowboy type weapons, right? Single action army revolvers and lever action rifles and that kind of stuff. And just would practice, you know, getting tight groups, just kind of like a, uh, I just enjoy accuracy for accuracy's sake. And I'll sit there and I'll try to, you know, move my groups as tight as I can at the furthest distances I can especially with pistols. It's kind of a weird fixation of mine. Yeah. And, oh, yeah. Um, I don't think that's that weird, right? I mean, that's super common, right? For, for most people that you want to get better at shooting if, if you're shooting and, and cowboy stuff is especially fun, if, especially if you're coming from the world of like modern single or modern, uh, you know, semi-automatic handguns or mm -hmm. something. You go to a lever action rifle like that. That's just fun. Oh, it's a ton of fun, except for the price of 3030. Uh, <laughs> right. I actually moved the opposite direction, though, because in the last few years, as I got more into the concealed carry world, uh, revolvers were not a very satisfying answer to my needs there. And um, I've gotten real into modern semi-automatics. So now most of my time I'm shooting uh, semi-automatic pistols and trying to get crazy groups at 25 yards. And I also compete in uh, USPSA matches in Colorado and Wyoming. I don't nice. say win at USPSA matches, but I compete in <laughs> USPSA matches. Um, so I've gotten, I, I guess it kind of went from fun with cowboy type guns to more serious engagement on a concealed carry and sports level with mostly semi-automatic handguns today. Interesting. Yeah, that is an interesting evolution. Uh, I feel like that is kind of backwards of how most people uh, do it now. You know, mm. they first get into modern handguns and shotguns and rifles and then maybe they discover the older stuff uh and how much fun it can be uh so you you've gone the other way on that and and i think that is pretty interesting uh so you do you um do you, what's uh what's your favorite gun do you have a favorite uh, yeah i thought you might ask that and i wondered what i would answer um you know one of the I think I have to say, as lame as it sounds, I think that HK really knocked it out of the park with the VP9. And that's a boring answer. Like, <laughs> oh, a black semi-automatic striker-fired polymer gun with a trigger safety, right? Like, what's well, so special about that? But it's got a great trigger for a striker-fired gun. The uh, the different options and size class from the VP9 SK to the VP9 Match all serve their functions real well. And it's nice to be able to have both concealed carry and competition guns. Yeah. that work the exact same way and use the same mags. Um, I'm a no, that makes armor, sense. So I, I like how, you know, I, I take everything apart and put it all back together. And, and I, I appreciate how the VP9 is put together. It's a little more complicated than some of the striker fired guns I've taken apart, but I like it. And yeah. Uh, well, uh, we had a f another guest, uh, actually another callback here because uh, we had John from Active Self Protection, and his mm. his favorite gun is also the VP9. Uh, somewhat famously, he's he's always talking about that over on his uh, Active Self Protection Extra channel. And so, yeah. you know, it's 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 an interesting gun because it's you know HK is obviously a world renowned brand that's known for quality, um, but it's not as popular in the United States. Like the VP9 is is their offering in that semi automatic striker fired handgun. Uh, space, but it's not, you know, Glock and Smith and Wesson and SIG are way more common. So it's, it's sort of like a enthusiast gun almost. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, once again, sort of like with my single action revolver to modern semi-auto move, 
I kind of grew with HK2 because I, I started with the P30 series and really liked the P30L and competed with that before I switched to BP series guns. Um, you know, I shot the P7s, the USPs. Like, I, I enjoy all of HK's stuff, including much more distinctive guns than the VP9. But I just think they did a great job with the VP9. And that's, I, I guess I'll stick with that answer. <laughs> yeah, I feel like a lot of people who own VP9s are are very much uh, impressed by them and don't don't want to switch to a Glock or a, a Smith. Uh, so, yeah, it's interesting to see the kind of reputation they've been able to garner with, with a gun like that that isn't like high, high volume necessarily, or at least yeah. not as high volume as, as their competitors. But uh, so what, what was it that got you interested in the reload? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I was trying to remember where I first heard about the reload. I, I certainly knew your name from before. I'd seen your writing here, there, and yawn. I think it might have been from the dispatch. Mm. I think something that something in your work was mentioned there, or, or one of their writers might have retweeted you or something like that. And anyway, I think it was around when all the story about all the weird stuff going on with the NRA was going on, and your writing about it finally led me to understand it. <laughs> right it's like i mean as much as you can it's it's yes. confusing anyway it's very I'm like oh i'm like that's what's going on right and i just not seen it before and then you know i subscribed uh initially to the free uh circular email thing mm-hmm. yeah i just liked uh your way of reporting i liked the way that you presented information without feeling like and again this is something similar to what i try to do without feeling like i, I had an agenda being pushed at me Right. I felt like no matter my position on this politically, I could learn something from you. And um, anyway, somewhere in late 2021, I decided to become a paid member. Uh, I really enjoyed the podcast that you've done. I mean, it, it, and you've done a great job with that in, in terms of not pushing too much of an agenda. I thought one of your great interviews is actually with the uh, the gun control activist who I can't remember his name. Right. Ryan, Ryan Busey. Yeah, but that, I mean, that was a great exchange of views that wasn't propagandistic or, or angry, I thought. You know, it was just a good exchange of views. I uh, enjoyed your interview with uh, uh, Shermichael Singleton. Yeah, uh, he's great. saying his name right? Yeah, yes. that, was a, that was a great interview, too. So I, I mean, One of the most charismatic guys uh, on the planet, I think, Shermichael. Very charismatic, yeah. But no, so, you know, you're just doing a great job with putting information out there that have not seen elsewhere. I like, again, your informative tone. That's not, you know, bombastic and, uh, you've got great guests. So yeah. wonderful. Well, thank you so much, uh, for joining us and giving us a little bit of insight about who you are and, and your interests and, and, you know, how you came to getting, become a member of the reload. I, I think this has been really insightful. Uh, and, Hey, look, if people want to join you as a member on the Reload, they can head on over to thereload.com and buy a membership today. You'll get access to exclusive analysis pieces and exclusive reports. You'll get the podcast a day early and you'll have the opportunity to be on the show in this member segment, I think, uh, which, again, is my favorite segment that we do because <laughs> um, I always like to hear from people uh, that give us uh, insight into the different backgrounds of gun owners in, in America. It's a very diverse community and it's only becoming more diverse uh, as things move along here. It's, and that's accelerated over the last couple of years. Another trend that we commonly follow at the reload. So if you want to check us out, you can start off with the free uh, subscription and you'll get the free newsletter every Friday that rounds up the biggest gun news of the week. And then, from there, you can see if uh, you're interested in more and, and buy a membership. So uh, that's all we've got for this week's episode. Uh, we'll see you next week.